we're trying to back businesses that will improve. And I think that that's a big distinction between the traditional way of doing sustainable ESG-based investing versus what we're doing. The traditional way is backward looking and you know, we're looking forward. So we're looking at the windscreen rather than looking in the rearview mirror. And I think by backing improvers, it gives you the opportunity set to get positioned in them before they start to receive the benefits that come through on their journey to being better valued as a business. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to the September sessions on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greerly, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Evie Hambro, Managing Director and Global Head of Thematic and Sector-Based Investing, Fundamental Equity at BlackRock. We'll be discussing how to put investment capital to work, investing in companies providing the materials we need to support the energy transition at scale, and finding those companies that are best positioned to profit from the changing energy landscape as we move from brown to green. Hello, Evie. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi, Dave. Thank you very much for having me on. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. I've been looking forward to talking with you. You're a portfolio manager, and we discuss a lot on Smarter Markets about the need and the challenges to get investment flowing to the materials and the commodities needed to support this energy transition. And that is what you're doing at BlackRock through your Brown to Green Materials Fund. And so I wanted to start off asking you, you know, why did you start that fund? What opportunity did you see for it? Yeah, so we, we've been investing in, in commodity-related securities since 1988. That was our first fund. And you know, we've grown and diversified the products and, and things over time. And so you know, we're always thinking about what's next. And I think what's become increasingly clear to us when we look at the energy transition, and we think about it in its simplest form, the kind of conclusion you come to relatively quickly is that we're moving away from fossil fuels and we're effectively replacing them with materials. A lot of that to do is with metals. And if we continue to produce those commodities and materials that are essential for the transition in the same way that we've always produced them, then by eliminating fossil fuels for energy generation and replacing them with materials which are produced by burning fossil fuels, then we're not actually going to make a big difference to the world. So we thought about that as a concept and we realized pretty quickly that it was essential that the supply chain of the materials to the kind of end product consumers, you know, the builders of renewable infrastructure and you know, electric vehicles and, and so on, that supply chain needed to evolve and needed to evolve away from the carbon intensive production processes that they've been doing for, yeah, in some cases, hundreds of years. And if the businesses could evolve away from that, there would be consequences, a lot of them positive, for, especially for the environment. But with the way that these uh, products are being priced, you know, if they can be produced with lower levels of carbon intensity and moving towards net zero, then maybe they could be priced differently as well. We also started to see a number of governments around the world 
start to offer incredibly low cost capital to groups that would you know that needed money to decarbonize and therefore we started we started to realize that maybe this lower cost capital would allow the businesses to start kind of you know scratching away at a at a better multiple you know and we'd seen a similar pattern come through in the utility spaces as utilities that have moved away from fossil fuels to renewables ended up trading at you know much much higher multiples and so we thought that there was an interesting source of alpha and and therefore performance if we could capture this strategy which is a long dated opportunity you know it's not going to you know we're not going to decarbonize the world in the next you know 12 months it's gonna, um, and therefore having a very long dated theme that had you know huge numbers attached to it if you could just capture a small part of that then that would be pretty value accretive um, to the businesses that were benefiting from that trend so we've spent the last 2 years looking looking at how we would best do this what systems we would need to have in place to identify businesses that were you know improving and becoming greener how we would start to report that information back to back to clients, you know, back testing the model portfolio, seeing you know, how it, how it had performed and and things, and eventually we kind of managed to get our way through all of the regulatory processes and and bring it to market in uh, in June of 2023. And I wanted to ask you about the types of companies you're investing in because I think it mm-hmm. fits in with your point about how companies are evolving and then also how do you find these opportunities i know you talk about investing in what you call emission reducers enablers and green leaders mm. could you explain to us what puts a company in one of those three categories in your view yeah so one of the kind of challenges about being an innovator i suppose is that you have to kind of you know write the rules and and things it's you know, there isn't an index to help you invest and say whether you want to have more in your portfolio or less in your portfolio than than there's an index there aren't any peer funds that you could look at to see how they are doing it so when you're kind of starting these things from scratch you really have to spend a lot of time working on the kind of portfolio construction and so when we when we looked at the opportunity set we started off by saying, well, let's have a look at MSCI, uh, the Acqui Index, and then work out where are the highest emitting parts of that universe, that investment universe. And you know, very quickly, you end up in traditional energy and utilities and materials. And so our materials account for 17% of global emissions. And then we said, well, okay, we've got all this data around emissions, but which of these subsectors of the universe are going to benefit from the transition? And by seeing rising demand for what they produce, and you kind of then immediately narrow down into the materials uh, area. And then we said, well, how, how are we going to tell people about this? How are we going to describe the kind of businesses we're backing? And so we thought, well, you know, there are obvious groups that are leading the way. They have advantaged business models. You know, it might be a commodities producer that has all of its energy from from renewable sources, from hydropower or, or, or so on. It might be a, a materials producer that has fantastic distribution arrangements and therefore can, you know, quickly deploy innovative new technology around decarbonization to you know, get product out to their customers in a, in a very, very efficient way and so on. So, or they're just leading the way in terms of, you know, emissions reduction. And so that's kind of how you would classify the green leaders. You know, the enable is is kind of two areas. Uh, these are the companies that are producing the commodities that are essential for the transition itself. So, you know, an example might be a company producing lithium, which is, you know, enabling the transition by supplying the lithium that will go into the batteries and, and so on. Or it could be an equipment or technology company that is enabling the decarbonization process of materials production. So if you're thinking about a simple example of moving away from diesel-powered trucks to electric-powered trucks and, and so on. That's how we classify the enablers. And then emissions reducers is a very rigid, formulaic approach 
to assess whether or not companies have robust, credible, well-financed plans to decarbonize themselves. And then if they meet a certain amount of emissions reduction over certain time periods, then they would qualify in that regard. So that's how we broke down the universe. And we're very aware that, you know, over time, you know, our definitions are going to evolve. And as the area becomes better understood, you know, I guess one of the key things about thinking about this approach is that you're doing something very differently to how people typically look at sustainable investing or, or ESG-related lenses. You know, most ESG processes are backward-looking. You're taking historic data to decide whether or not a company is is good, effectively, and then you would include it. And if it's bad, then you would exclude it. What we're trying to do here is do this in the opposite. We're trying to back businesses that will improve. And I think that that's a big distinction between the traditional way of doing, you know, sustainable ESG-based investing versus what we're doing. You know, the traditional way is backward looking and, you know, we're looking forward. So we're looking at the windscreen rather than looking in the rearview mirror. And I think by backing improvers, it gives you the opportunity set to get positioned in them before they start to receive the benefits that come through on their journey to being better valued as a business that would, you know, qualify for other people to invest in because of their processes being you know, orientated in a, in, in a different way. That's such an important point of instead of looking to punish for past behavior, how do you encourage the change in behavior that we need to have on a large scale to make this energy transition happen? You know, innovation is hard. How difficult is it to change that mindset with investors of It's not the way they've looked at this in the past. These aren't categories that are tried and true. This is a a learning process. Do people engage with that or is there a lot of risk aversion? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is it's tough. You know, it's an education process, um, but we've done it before and we have high conviction that we'll be able to do it again. So in 2019, we launched a, a fund that was exposed to the circular economy. Exactly the same process, you know. You know, at the time, speaking to clients about circular economy, most people were like, well, what is the circular economy? How do you just decide whether a business is circular? I mean, there are obvious names like a recycling company, but, you know, trying to broaden the universe to think about that. And so we had a, you know, a very, very similar challenge. You know, we spent a lot of time going out, meeting with clients, describing to them how we were constructing portfolios, how we were identifying and classifying circularity, how we'd got to points of materiality to decide whether or not a business was truly exposed to, to these themes. You know, and then we also had the benefit with that particular strategy of working with an external partner who was a, you know, a group called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who's the world leader in understanding the circular economy. And you know, that fund was, you know, has been a, a big success and, and, and things. So, and we've got other examples as well. So we have conviction that we're going to be able to go out and work with clients to explain to them what brown to green is. I think brown to green is pretty well understood as a, as a concept or a brand or a name and materials as well understood. But I think the, the big difference is saying, well, you have a, an approach to allocating portfolios and you have certain different parts that you look at your kind of, I don't know, your multi-asset or your model portfolios and you say, well, this bit is global equities or fixed income and, and so on. And we adopt a, a, an approach to sustainability of, of, of this. And you go in there and you say, actually, well, you know, we're going, doing something completely different. And, uh, and they're like, well, oh, crikey, I'm, yeah, I get it. That sounds common sense, but I've now got to find a way of a space to include it in. And I think that's the challenge that we face today in going out there and speaking to clients because because we're doing it differently. It doesn't fit the model 
we don't necessarily think that our approach is, you know, everybody has to do it, but we think there's a role for it. We hope that we're right and we're early in terms of thinking about this shift in, in investing in this way. And maybe other people will start to kind of flatter us and, and do the same thing. And if that's the case, then by being early, I think we're, we'll be able to kind of get ahead of the curve and, and, and capture a lot of value. And another part of the investment model that's changing is I think if you went back a few years, a lot of investors, when they would hear ESG or impact, they would think, I'm going to, I'm going to accept lower financial returns mm-hmm. in return for doing something that's more socially beneficial. Mm-hmm. But you brought up an important word earlier, alpha, which is generating better than normal returns because these companies, you know, it's a changing world. And there are companies that are better positioned to do well in that changing world, whether it's they have access to lower carbon energy, like hydro, whether it's governments, consumers want to support that brand, support their actions, and that gives Mm -hmm. them a lower cost of capital or higher sales. How do you see that switch occurring? And to what extent is it of people moving towards, hey, this is an opportunity to earn better returns as opposed to having an element of philanthropy to it? Yeah, I, I think I think people's tolerance for for sustainable investing being, as you, your word, philanthropy, I think that that disappeared a while ago. I think people have a return expectation, full stop, and whether they try to achieve that through sustainable orientated portfolios or, or the opposite, I don't know. I think, but the return expectation is there. So I don't think there's much tolerance for lower returns from from different strategies just because they're, they're sustainable orientated. If anything, over the last few years, they've had superior returns for sustainability, not in the last 12 months, but over the prior years before that. Yeah, there were some fantastic returns from these businesses. I think what we hope, and we have some pretty high conviction around this, is that the, the, the sources of alpha that we're targeting, as I touched on earlier on, are pretty differentiated. So we think that we should be able to capture those over and above market exposure. And so if we think about say, for example, lower cost of capital. You know, we know that businesses are being offered very, very low cost capital for access to commodity supply. We know that governments are, well, have been historically unbelievably complacent about commodity supply, are now increasingly concerned about where they're going to get some of these commodities from. And lots of this debate around, you know, um, security of supply and critical minerals and so on. And the development of the US IRA, the European Green Deal, all of these plans around the world. You know, I think that's based around a kind of waking up that, you know, uh, more and more of these commodities come from, and not necessarily where they're dug out of the ground from, but where they're processed from is, is all orientated back to China. And, you know, this move around, you know, supply chain resilience, uh, onshoring of industry back into developable economies in particular, you know, that is around security of supply concerns. And so, that cost of capital reduction is available today. It's not reflected in valuations, but it is available. And I think as people start to realize that the cost of decarbonization is going to be lower because governments are going to support it. I mean, in Europe, you know, for every euro you spend, you're, you're typically getting a euro of grant from the European government. So your cost of capital is 40, 50% lower than you probably what you, what you previously thought. But over and above that, the, the actual returns that you can get from those investments are going to be superior because, in part because of the lower cost of capital, but also because the business models are evolving. You know, if you're going to go to a, an automotive uh, OEM and say, right, you know, I can supply you with a million tons of carbon-free steel or carbon-free aluminium, they're going to pay a big premium for access to that because, of course, OEMs are going to compete on price, 
but they're also going to compete on their value proposition. And part of their value proposition is going to be the carbon footprint of a vehicle in the same way that a house builder might be uh, doing something similar as well. And many other, you know, fast moving consumer goods and, uh, and so on. So I think the kind of landscape on competition is going to be, it's going to have a greater focus on the environmental footprint of production as well as consumption. And so those supply, the decarbonization of those supply chains is going to release value to those who can capture it. So I think some of the business models out there are actually going to be providing returns over and above market opportunity. And if you're going in at a really low point, which is what you know, the valuations seem to imply today, then you know, some of the risk on the downside is, is actually probably not that great. And I wanted to dig in with you a little bit into the distinguishing the environmental footprint, because there's been this paradox in mining and materials. You know, while some producers are mining in a lower carbon, more environmentally responsible way, as you said, for example, having access to hydropower, overall, I think it's fair to say that investors view the sector broadly as decidedly not green. You know, they are responsible for a lot of emissions. But these metals and materials are also critical if we're going to transition to that greener, lower carbon energy system. I'm curious, you know, how are you trying to overcome this tension with your investors and also with your investments? Yeah, so there's the two elements to that, I guess, investors and, and the companies we're investing in. So starting off with investors, I think it's an education process. We're doing our best to, to help people understand the way that we're looking at businesses and how we're deciding which ones to, to allocate capital and which ones not, not to. You know, we have access to all of the information everybody else does with regards to what they think about, whether or not they're good or bad, the data on emissions and water use and social and, and so on. So, you know, we have our own processes that allow us to go through that. And we spend more time today speaking to our clients around why we invest in businesses over and above valuation, something that and that's very different to, to the past where our clients were less interested in that information. It's actually nothing. It's not much new for us because we've always seen doing that work as a way of managing risk. You know, for businesses, well regarded or badly regarded, then you know your capital that you've invested in it is going to be impacted by their reputation, whether that's an environmental reputation or a social reputation or a governance-related uh, issue. You know, those are all risk factors that you need to you need to understand. So, in part, it's down to us to help our clients understand the way we're doing things. And some clients will like that, and others won't, and and that will give us the opportunity to you know by their backing do what we want to do. With regards to the companies, you know, that's really around stewardship and engagement. And so, you know, we do spend a lot of time with businesses, both at the executive level and the, and the board level for, with regards to, to stewardship and, and, and governance. But we also spend time with businesses out of the office, in the field, assessing, you know, where we go to see assets and so on around the world you know, how they're doing. Uh, and we won't just visit, a, you know, a factory or a steel plant or a concrete facility or, you know, or, or mines. And when we go there, we won't just meet with the executives running it, we'll meet with the local communities and local government representation to understand some of the, the risks that we need to get hold of. And so I think by engaging with companies and explaining to them how we are you know, analyzing them and then them asking us questions about what we would like to see them do differently, you know, we, hopefully, and if we do this outside of the media spotlight when not on the front page of a newspaper, then you can probably have quite a lot of success by engaging in, in, in that way. I want to follow up on that point with you. But first, I'm curious, as part of that education effort, as part of the broader mm. education effort that's out there, are you seeing investor attitudes towards the material sectors changing at all? I think the, the bit that would accelerate investor interest is if the industry had the confidence to speak with one voice 
and it had the data that allowed them to show themselves on a level playing field. And so we need a standardization of reporting of data to be able to show who is doing well and who's behind. And I think if we can do that, then the industry can move forward as one because you know the tide's coming in and everybody needs to get better. But if everyone's reporting it differently, we can't see where, where groups sit relative to each other. And then if the industry speaks with one voice rather than company A saying they're better than company B and company B saying they're better than company A, you know, you've, you've kind of lost the debate. What you need to do is you need to put in place a single voice to say, we're doing something that the world needs. You know, we're doing it in a way that and by putting these standards in place and reporting in place in a way that you can assess whether or not you think, you know, the different businesses are doing well or, or behind. I think that would be a huge step forward in helping people understand and getting comfortable with allocating capital in this area. Because without people allocating capital in this area, there will not be enough production of the materials that we need to be able to decarbonize the world. So are you thinking of like ultimately something that would sit alongside traditional financial statements like balance sheets and income statements, but would be about carbon footprints and practices? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if we kind of walk forward into the future, I can see the London Metal Exchange, for example, having a price for copper and then a price for copper, you know, for green copper. And there's going to be a price differential. Whether one trades at a premium to the other or one becomes the market price and the other one goes to a discount, I don't know how people will look at it. But there's going to be a price difference because there's going to be a value in use. And, you know, a light vehicle, traditional uh, internal combustion engine vehicle, has about 60% of its emissions over the life of the vehicle that come from the burning of the fossil fuels. You know, 40% of the emissions come from the manufacturing process. You know, so we can take the fuel out and replace it with electricity, and then we can get the electricity instead of from carbon-orientated sources to from renewables, and the 60% can disappear. But it's the 40% that's still going to be there. And if there are going to be more of these things on the road, then we're just going to have more emissions attached to the manufacturing process, which actually is not going to net-net have the big reduction that we're chasing. And so I think, you know, the, the area, as I said earlier on, the area of competition is going to be who can, and this is the hard bit, who can decarbonize that last 40%. And so if you're an electric vehicle manufacturer and you've got the cars in the showroom and people wandering around and you can say, look, this is 100% carbon free and this is why, because we bought, you know, copper from this company and this mine and this aluminium and this steel and these battery materials and, and, and so on. And we can charge differently from that. Somebody's got to capture that price differential. It's a little bit like you going to the supermarket and saying, right, where did this meat come from? You know, how is that meat produced or the wheat and so on? And people want to know more about how something's made, where the ingredients came from, how they were produced. And I think there's value in, in that. And I think that we're, gonna, we're seeing more and more of that coming through in the material space. And I wanted to come back with the conversations you're having with companies and your mm. experience with companies, because I'm interested in how are they approaching the energy transition and in particular, is it the necessary but more narrow focus on decarbonizing their supply chains, or are they more broadly rethinking their overall business models? I, I think of the yeah. circular business, the circular strategy. Yeah, great question. I think you know if you go back five years ago and you looked at a company's capital expenditure plans, there was very little being allocated to decarbonization. And there was probably more orientated to volume growth or you know balance sheet reduction and and so on. Now, you know there is you know strict competition in companies' plans between allocating to decarbonisation versus growth. 
because I think that the economics attached to the decarbonization have improved. So the efficiency of the technologies has got better. The costs of, the, of them have become more acceptable and can generate you know, positive returns. Come back to your earlier conversation around you know, philanthropy and ESG. I think they're actually financial, good financial returns. I think some of the business models are becoming clearer uh, in terms of what someone's prepared to pay for a decarbonized product versus a non-decarbonized one. And so I think when you put all of that together, there is a financial justification. I think some of the ambitions around decarbonization that were put out a few years ago might be a little bit overzealous. I think as technologies improve and we get better battery chemistry, better efficiency, greater access to renewables and so on, I think the decline of of emissions curve is still going to be steep. But I think some of the goals might orientate a bit in terms of timing. But I think for good financial reason in, in many of these businesses. So I think the whole area is, is is becoming better understood. And I don't see companies backtracking from commitments, which I think is where you're going with your question. If anything, I think there is there's greater emphasis on trying to achieve those commitments. And I think the one of the, the bits I would refer to in that regard is that we're seeing more and more executive compensation plans include links to decarbonization goals. And I wanted to ask you, because one of the things that has slowed some progress mm. or speeded it up in other circumstances is the attitudes and actions of regulators, media coverage, consumers. Mm. When you think about the progress being made and the pace it's being made at, how are you seeing that being affected by some of these more external influences? Yeah, clearly they, they, there's a sentiment element. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's ESG at any cost. It might have been more of a focus a few years ago than it is today. I think it's you know, there's, there's definitely a focus of the speed has to be affordable. And I think there's probably, you know, the pendulum swung very, very far and has, has come back a bit. But I don't think it's changed the direction of travel. Uh, if anything, I think the direction of travel is better entrenched, but there's probably more analysis around how we achieve it uh, and more deliberate decisions around capital allocation to try and get the best returns from that process as well as the emissions reduction. And I think that that is really, really healthy for everybody. I think, you know, the media coverage, the government influences and so on, I think those are important. But I think the societal demands for change are so great, it would be very, very difficult to start going backwards. Yeah. Now, I wanted to dig in a little bit with you on this question of credibility, Mm. because a big challenge for companies and their investors has been developing and assessing the credibility of climate action and energy transition plans. Obviously, being accused of greenwashing can have a big impact on a company and its share price. And at times, you know, this can make it seem like the prudent course of action for a CEO or investor is to do nothing instead of something, even though we all need to be doing something. So I was curious, how do you approach assessing the credibility of a climate action or energy transition plan as an investor? Yeah, I think there's there's lots of different subcomponents of that. I don't think there's one way of doing it. One of the things that we try to do is to get under the skin of the business and assess its culture. You know, are people really committed to it? Is this part of the part of the DNA? When you you know you don't just meet the CEO, you try and meet other people in the firm at you know different tiers of responsibility, and you need to kind of really get into the, their way of thinking. And you know, and if they're kind of it's saying something different about 
the goal than the company is saying, then you know there's a cause for concern. So I think that's part of the analysis. It's it's less quantitative, more qualitative, but I think it, nonetheless it's an important part. I think obviously the data is is essential, but I think when you look at the kind of commitments around improvement. You know, you need to start looking at things like, you know, how much money is the company spending relative to the cost of these plans? You know, are the timeframes likely to be real? Is the technology they're using going to be something that's, you know, out of date in a couple of years and therefore they should be waiting to use the next iteration of that that's going to be, you know, I guess, lower cost, better, you know, efficiencies and and so on. So I think it's just, it's a question of understanding things. And I think that to us, you know, we're not going to hold a company to account because they've made a commitment to get to X percent by 2030. You know, if they're, you know, that if they've missed it by 10 percent, you know, instead of they've reduced by 30 percent, they've reduced by 27 percent. That's not the end of the world, you know, and there's probably very good reason why they might be a little bit slower because they've deliberately made a decision to build the next thing when they can afford it rather than borrowing lots of money at high interest rates to do it or they've had a, you know, a permitting process delay or whatever it might be you know so as long i think it's a question of just understanding the journey and it's really important that the companies are open and transparent around some of the challenges they might face uh, on that journey and to keep investors up to date you know don't you know, make a commitment around a certain date and say nothing for three or four years you know keep us informed on the journey and i think you're going to be people are going to be much more supportive if there is a need for change and i wanted to ask you about another challenge in investing in the energy transition so you know assessing credibility is one and it sounds like that that is similar to what you would do with any other company you mm-hmm. got to understand the personality and character of the management and where they're thinking and then you have to have data to back up the claims another challenge though is a lot of people see the the issues they see the gap between the materials we need and the materials we have but many of the opportunities to invest they're just not investable yet you know there are important energy transition commodities that lack liquid futures markets there are companies and project developers working at that leading edge but they're private not public companies how do you think about finding the investable opportunities and how do you think about growing your opportunity set over time yeah i think we're very lucky we're part of blackrock so we have we get to see most things and i think if we if we want to go and engage with a company you know one of the advantages of being in an organization like this is you know it's it's relatively easy to reach out to them and to get a hold of a meeting or somebody in the firm might already have a relationship and so on so i think if from that point of view the kind of corporate access is is in a, is hopefully an advantage through time I think also being in a large organization, you know, there's lots of idea generation and ideas sharing and and so on. Yeah, another element is, is, as I said earlier on, is getting out of the office, you know, getting out into the field, meeting the businesses, hearing what's going on, you know, going and seeing an actual physical asset, talking to the people and, you know, you're sitting there and, and the engineers or the plant operator are saying, oh, yeah, you should see what they're doing down the road. Really interesting new stuff. And you know, going, you know, so ideas come from everywhere. And I think that, the, you know, sitting around in an office and not seeing anybody is probably the worst way to do stuff. Getting out and about, traveling, meeting people, meeting clients, you know, doing things like this. You know, ideas come from lots of different sources. And so I don't have any doubt that we're going to have enough to look at. If anything, we've probably got too much to look at. I think it's about sizing the, sizing the exposure appropriately for the risk um, that you're taking. That's the challenge. Uh, and hopefully we, you know, we've done it for long enough and um, that we're, we're, we're not too bad at that. Well, I wanted to thank you, Evie, for sharing your insights and your experience with us. 
But before I let you go, I wanted to ask you uh, a big picture question, mm. you know, which is, how do you see the opportunities for investors to put capital to work, transforming our energy system from brown to green, evolving over, say, the next five, 10 years? Yeah. We like to think about this space in terms of identifying themes that you know you could classify as as kind of some people describe them as fast rivers, you know. So if you're in the fastest part of the river, then the chances are you're going to be able to get where you want to go to uh, most efficiently. And what we're trying to do in the, is in those fast rivers is trying to find that source of alpha or return that's going to be that's going to help us on the on delivering the journey for the client. And with regards to the way we're looking at themes is that the last thing you want to do is be really, really early or be really, really late. And so identifying, trying to spot where you are at the inflection point of change, where the kind of adoption rate, the market share, et cetera, et cetera, of the incumbent is going to be disrupted because that change is coming through and the, and the new player, the disruptor, is going to capture a lot of value from that change. The timing on that is essential. And so if you can get as close as possible to that inflection point, then that should substantially de-risk the journey that you're going on. And so for us, we think in regards to brown to green, we are absolutely at that inflection point. The business models are changing. The cost of capital is falling. You know, the opportunity set, the underlying demand is growing rapidly. Um, the valuations are at a low point. So we think we're, we hope, and I'll probably live to regret saying this, um, we really hope that we've, we've got the timing uh, as good as possible for our clients in this regard. We know we're early in terms of the education. We know we're early in terms of explaining a different way to, to invest and, and look at improving businesses rather than ones that are already good. But we think from a fundamental point of view, the underlying businesses, it's exactly the right time. And if in three or four years' time from now, I'm wrong, I'm totally happy to, to eat my humble pie and come back on the show and, and say that. But um, I, I, re I really have a lot of confidence around our timing in, in this one, just because you know we got so many tailwinds uh, from the way that we're, we're seeing things. Couldn't agree more. We'd love to have you back. And I hope it's for a victory lap and not humble pie. <laughs> great. Thank you very much. That was a great pleasure to do that today. Thanks again to Evie Hambro, Managing Director and Global Head of Thematic and Sector-Based Investing, Fundamental Equity at BlackRock. We hope you enjoyed the episode. This concludes our series, The September Sessions on Smarter Markets. Please join us next week for our new podcast series, Commodities in Asia. In this series, we'll be discussing the current state and future ambitions of the commodities markets in Asia. Across energy, metals, agriculture, and carbon, we'll be talking with the leading voices of the Asian commodities markets to help us better understand how we can work together to build the next generation of truly global, smarter markets. We'll be starting off with our guest, Amrita Ang, Executive Director at Enterprise Singapore, and we'll be discussing how Singapore has become a center for commodities trading and the broader commodities industry. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets. 
facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube or your favourite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.